from PRX. This is Studio 360. I'm Kurt Anderson. And I'm sitting on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. This first level of garden. This is Thomas Jefferson's vegetable garden. I like to have the roasted chicken paste. Very well done. Editing is all about timing. I try to get a little bit away from the actual subject. You must get sick of your own voice, right? Studio 360. With Kurt Anderson. What are you, my mother? I'm not your mother. What are you, my mother? I'm not your mother. What are you, my mom? I am not your mother. Who are you, my mother? Today on the show, motherhood and women creating stories about what it can mean to be a mother today. This is it. My name is Gloria Calderon Kellett, and I am the executive producer, co showrunner, and co creator of One Day at a Time on Netflix, a reimagining of the Norman Lear 1975 classic. Reimagining is definitely the right word. Because the new One Day at a Time isn't like reboots of the Roseanne and Arrested Development kind that just reunite the cast and rebuild the sets and continue the old shows where they left off. Instead, Gloria Calderon-Kellett's version of One Day at a Time changes almost everything. Norman Lear's original version went on the air in 1975, lasted until 1984. It featured a white divorced mom with two daughters. The new version features a divorced mom too, but this new one is a brown-skinned Cuban-American and army veteran raising both a daughter, Elena. Mom, after school, can you drive me to march with the lesbians against fracking? As well as a son, Alex. Every time I show up at school, there are all these eyes expecting perfection. You might think that 95-year-old Norman Lear would resist so much futzing with his original idea. But it turns out the futzing was his idea. I was leaving a spin class and I got a phone call that Norman wanted to talk about one day at a time and remaking it with a Latino lead. And, you know, I really took the meeting honestly because I just wanted to meet Norman Lear. Lear and his producing partner had seen a study about the rarity of Latinas on TV shows, especially single moms. And Lear happened to have a well-tested single mom story he was looking to reboot. He said, if this were you, Gloria, and you were divorced tomorrow, what would that look like for you? And I said, well, first of all, my parents would live with me. I mean, my parents are at my house every day, right now. That's the truth of my life. You know, it's something that in my own life, my parents were working parents. I spent a lot of time with my grandmother. My mother's mother is who picked me up from school. My, I was at their house until my parents got home from work. I ate every dinner at my grandmother's house because she lived next door to us. Uh, it was a very huge part of my life being with my grandmother and grandfather. And when I told that to Norman, he was like, well, great, let's do it. They cast Rita Moreno to play Lydia, the fictional family's live-in grandmother. Rita's character is is really loosely based on my mother and grandmother and the type of fierce, stunning, hilarious, dramatic women that they that they my grandmother has passed away, but my mother is very much alive and always has a heel and a lipstick. I need to look nice in case I die in my sleep. <laughs> Mommy, don't say that. No, Mija, if I do die. Make sure that they do a good job on my face for the funeral and bring a little red lipstick along. I know. You've been telling me since I was five. Don't let them make me up like a puta. And my shade is a scarlet sunrise. 
The original version wasn't among the best Norman Lear shows like All in the Family or Sanford and Son, but this new one is getting lots of critical approval. The New York Times called it a show that radiates delight. And Netflix will release a third season next year. Before she started making sitcoms, Gloria Calderon-Kellett, born in the 1970s, watched a lot of them. Here's the story of a lovely lady who was bringing up... And the TV mothers she watched growing up, before she had kids, shaped how she viewed motherhood and how she now developed storylines about it. She talked with us about some of her favorite TV moms. Mrs. Brady, Carol Brady... Carol just always looked amazing, always had a smile on her face, always had good advice and stern words, but also really loved and enjoyed her kids and her husband. Marsha, lots of children have to wear braces. Dr. Ruskin will take them off soon and you'll be prettier than ever. By that time, I'll be an old maid. (laughs) Twenty. Mrs. Brady really reminded me of my mom. She always looked amazing. My mother always looked amazing, looks amazing. She's still alive. She looks amazing all the time. Like, I don't know if she wakes up super early or she's just sort of genetically perfect. It's probably the latter. Elise Keaton from The Amazing Family Ties. You have every right to live your own life. I'm not trying to deny you that. Was sort of the first time I saw friends' moms represented on TV, like the Caucasian houses that I went to have playdates at. Uh, she just reminded me of these, you know, fun, young, excited moms who had a lot to say and were very, very smart and political and had strong points of view. And I, I always really appreciated that. She had different points of view than her kids. Okay, then why did you drive 100 miles and humiliate me in front of half the state of West Virginia? You had a few hours to kill? (laughs) No, Alex, I did it because you defied me. And even more important than that, I did it because I was hurt and angry and fed up. Like, that's dramatic. (laughs) I love it. That's a dramatic conversation that's done with humor. She is imperfect and is able to admit that imperfection, which is also really huge. Oh my gosh, Who's the Boss was amazing because not only was Angela, who was also a professional divorcee, raising her son, but Mona, who was this fabulous, larger-than-life, glamorous grandmother, uh, much like my mother and my grandmother, was in the home. So I, I really saw my family through those women. They were tough and they were beautiful and they were funny and fierce. Mother, mm-hmm. you're wearing a bathing suit. <laughs> what? <laughs> How did it get on me? <laughs> I just meant it isn't it a little revealing? I certainly hope so. <laughs> oh my god. Oh man. Take a book to bed, or at least somebody who's read one. <laughs> There was a sexuality to Mona that Lydia certainly has, too, that I think people don't often write to that much anymore. These amazing, sexy older women who really live in their their beauty and their sexuality, but also are really well-rounded humans. 
And that's not something that is often seen for actresses uh, beyond a certain age. And, you know, Rita's 86 years old. (laughs) And she's, you can't get sexier than Rita Moreno. Well, okay, Claire Huxtable in The Cosby Show was a freaking lawyer, like a badass lawyer. She was a working mom and also an incredible and warm and supportive uh, parent. You're not going to a college party where they're going to be guys four and five years older than you. Forget it. Mom, can I help it if I'm so mature that older men find me attractive? (laughs) You're forcing me to socialize with people my own age, and it's holding back my intellectual development. Darling, what I'm holding back here has nothing to do with intellect. (laughs) I don't think because I'm in Washington you can just up and do as you please, and I won't know about it. I have eyes and ears everywhere, dear. So good. I love her. The amazing Felicia Rashad. Oh, my gosh. My mom was a working mom. And to be able to see that represented on TV and to also see that this woman was a working mom, had a thriving career, but was also a wonderful mom, was also there for her kids, uh, was really transformative because not only were these people of color, which is also something that I had never seen before and that I self-identified with, they were affluent, they were loving, uh, and it was it was really, really amazing to be able to see that because my mom got a lot of flack. It was growing up uh, in the 70s and 80s, you know, that was still sort of frowned upon women returning to the workplace, as crazy as that sounds. You know, my mom, to her credit, I don't know how she managed to do it, but there's not one performance or speech or anything that she ever missed. She found a way to leave work and then work late to cover it or something so that she could be at everything. And I feel like that was represented in Claire Huxtable for me, is this mom who, my God, was determined to have her own life and career but also be a wonderful mom to her kids. You have a family who loves you. Thanks, Mom. I think the thing I want to say about motherhood on One Day at a Time You know, I really relate to Penelope, a lot of the way she thinks and feels about being a mother and having a mother around is reflected through my lens. It's very complicated and it's hard and it's painful. Alex, we're going to figure this out, but you can't hit somebody every time they call you a name. I don't. It was just this time. What, this has happened before? Yeah. What did they say? You know, beaner, webbag, gangbanger. Pitbull. Pitbull is the only one that's even close to accurate. (laughs) And it's beautiful and it's joyous. And it's not easy to raise these kids and to have a sense of who you think they are and then they turn into whoever they are. I wanted to have the most perfect coming out story, you know, where I'm cool and supportive and we high five and ride unicorns down a rainbow together. And to be able to see this woman's journey as she loves her kids and tries to help them be the best people they can be and live happy lives while also taking into account her own stability, her own mental health, her own journey as a person, and also seeing and caring for her mother. You had a stroke? I kept it a secret from you. You kept it a secret from me? It was nothing. You were pregnant with Elena. I didn't want to bother you. This was 15 years ago. I can't believe you. I have a hammer toe that needs to be shaved. (laughs) 
How dare you attack me when I'm about to go under the knife? And making characters that are real people so that people can see themselves and hopefully start conversations about motherhood, about how difficult it is to parent, and to hopefully make it a little easier, I hope, for parents at home. You know, you don't have to be a superwoman. There can only be one such woman in a family, and that is me. <laughs> that piece was produced by Zoe Saunders, Mary Saunders's favorite daughter. Gloria Calderon-Kellett's show, One Day at a Time, is on Netflix. Coming up... Pregnancy was the great adventure, it seems now. The great bravery. The epic adventure that lasts nine months. To allow my lungs to be doubled in size, as it said in the books. To submit to the gulping placenta. That's next on Studio 360. Children of Men, Alfonso Cuaron's terrific film from 2006, stars Clive Owen as a guy determined to protect the world's last pregnant woman in this dystopian 2027 Britain. I'm scared. Please help me. She's pregnant. Now you know what's at stake. Despite the global species significance of her pregnancy, it is Owen's character who is definitely that movie's star. As they run away together from police and terrorists, our point of view is his. This hour of Studio 360 is all about motherhood. And I'm happy to report there are some new works of fiction about pregnant women where the women are the unambiguous heroes. Like Children of Men, these are stories set in dystopias, but the mothers in these stories protect themselves and their babies. Studio 360 producer Zoe Saunders spoke with some of these writers, beginning with Louise Erdrich. You have eyebrows, eyelashes, even a little hair. Your footprints and fingerprints are legible now, and the complex components of your eyes have formed even though... You will not open your lids for a couple of weeks. Sight is the last sense to develop. The nerve connections in your hands are still perfecting themselves. Your brain, the big question mark, has been making 5,000 neurons every minute ever since you were four weeks old. Every nerve cell can make 10,000 connections. All along, the neurons have been steadily migrating to their destinations. I guess they just know where to go from the moment they are formed. They travel in waves, millions every day, moving along glial pathways. You've got all of your neurons now, billions and billions, and with every second, two million new connections are made between them. More connections than stars in the sky. That's from Louise Erdrich's novel, Future Home of the Living God. The main character, Cedar Songmaker, is a young Native American woman who finds out that she's pregnant just as society is beginning to crumble. She's speaking here to her unborn child. Cedar Songmaker's really talking to herself about what's happening to her physically. And in a way, your first pregnancy is an incredibly abstract, strange process. So everything inside her is changing. 
And it makes women intellectually precocious at the time because we have to try and absorb this very abstract thing that's happening. We, how can you believe there's another entire individual that you are forming inside of yourself? You know, it's happening all the time. But it's crazy. I had my son when I was fairly young, when I was 25, and I just had this real fascination in the fact that you could create another whole life. The novelist Megan Hunter found her own pregnancy to be kind of a potboiler. It seemed this kind of endlessly fascinating thing to be, so it's not really a surprise that I've written a book about this in the end. Her book is The End We Start From, and like Erdrich's, it begins with a pregnant woman in a dystopian scenario. There are so many types of stories you can tell about having children. So why science fiction? Pregnancy is science fiction. <laughs> That's Parley Ann Boswell, professor emeritus at Eastern Illinois University. She wrote a book called Pregnancy in Literature and Film. It's the idea that you have your own body and all of a sudden you're sharing it with an alien. Something in there that's making you throw up <laughs> or making you sick that's changing the shape of your body and you have no control. Oh my goodness, I'm sharing my body with someone I don't know. <laughs> and he's not giving me much sleep. And I'm losing my life. It's very frightening. And it's difficult in ways that we don't ever talk about, except in science fiction. <laughs> that's where we talk about it. Pregnancy was the great adventure, it seems now the great bravery, to allow my lungs to be doubled in size, as it said in the books, to submit to the gulping placenta. It is only humans and monkeys who let the fetus feed from their own blood supply, I read. Only humans and monkeys who let their young release themselves back into the mother, float themselves into her, minute explorers. In Hunter's book, an unnamed new mother and her newborn infant face hardship alone, on the run from rising floodwaters. But to her, the extreme weather outside seems almost banal compared to the truly awesome science happening inside her womb. There's a sci-fi dimension and there's a slightly uncanny sense to it. I remember being really shocked when I read that the cells of fetuses were found in the mother's brain. You know, I found some scientific article about that. So when the baby is, is in the womb, their cells actually go up into your brain. I just thought, what? You know, why has nobody ever told me this? That is just a kind of really shocking fact. I can't believe this is even physically possible. This can't work. This can't work. It doesn't make any sense. This sensation of getting bigger and bigger was one of the major experiences I would have. Um, and I felt that way when I was pregnant, this growing sense of claustrophobia because, like, the world is the same size at all times. Chairs are the same. Everything else is the same size. But you, or me personally, or, the you know, whoever is pregnant, is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And you're sort of like that, that strange sense where you're half asleep and all of a sudden you have this sort of out-of-body experience where you are vast. You're suddenly so big that you can't imagine that you can be contained by a world. But that's almost what it's like. Like, you really are getting bigger and bigger, and the world is staying the same. 
I was interested in that experience of just suddenly realising at a certain point you come home from the hospital, you're holding your new baby and everything has completely changed. And perhaps then you look out the window and you see, okay, everything hasn't completely changed, but it's just changed for me. But then um, it feels like that, you know, and, and I think the book was in some ways an exploration of, you know, what if that really was the case, everything really had changed and that sort of metaphorical flooding was a real flooding. So while these characters are thinking obsessively about the weird transformations going on inside their bodies, those thoughts are complicated and threatened by what's going on in the world outside. In Erdrich's story, unexplained changes in biology have created a reproductive crisis, and all pregnant women are kept under lock and key. In Hunter's story, a catastrophic flood has turned England into a desperate refugee camp. I think we all give birth into uncertain times and into our own particular kind of circumstances of change and and of disruption. Obviously, some people far, far more than others. And in the book, she is in a very particular, perilous, dangerous situation. So her waters break, the flood happens. Um, I was interested in the image of the amniotic fluid that the baby is growing in and, and the links between those really. And, you know, there's a certain quality in which the whole book is about the motherhood experience, but within this particular context. And faced with these threats, the mothers switch over to survival mode. We as a culture often view pregnant women as helpless and less than. But these stories show the strength and tenacity and resolve that mothers can marshal. What motivates her, and I think it's what motivates a lot of women at some point, is a kind of rage to see this through and to see your baby and to really survive and she has that she has a survivor's instincts there is anyway a very instinctive sense when you have a baby that you absolutely just have to keep them alive (laughs) you know it's very visceral I remember becoming obsessed with were my children breathing when they stopped breathing and I think that takes on a different you know texture a different shape in the book because she's in a life-threatening situation sometimes and so that sense of of needing to survive of needing him to survive is all the stronger In these two novels, the women have to draw on their own strength. Both of the women have been abandoned by their husbands, who caved under pressure. But what about when the threat comes from men? Like in The Handmaid's Tale, Margaret Atwood's book and the popular Hulu series based on it, where men try to control pregnancy. In the face of a fertility crisis, women are kept as baby-making slaves. You girls will serve the leaders of the faithful and their barren wives, you will bear children for them. Or in Mad Max Fury Road, where the warlord Immortan Joe holds women captive as sex slaves or breeders to bear his children. And hey, that's my child, my property. But in Erdrich and Hunter's novels, women aren't shackled by their pregnancies. They're empowered. When men write about it, It's interesting to me because they are almost in awe of what women can do. And when women write about it, we are terrified of what men can do. It's about being controlled, almost always, when women write about it. And when men write about it, like in Dune, it's like the women have this enormous power that nobody can figure out. And it makes complete sense that our sense as women is... We are going to be controlled, and we can be controlled because we become less and less physically agile. We become more helpless. 
And that's maybe the most frightening thing about being pregnant. You know, it's something that men don't experience. Pregnancy narratives, especially those generated by women, are about pregnant women as warriors. What is more difficult than giving birth? Nothing. And uh, women are heroes. We are the warriors, the ones who give birth. And, uh, of course, women become the heroes of their stories. Pregnancy allows that. With the Me Too movement and escalating threats to abortion access, women's autonomy and rights can feel like a battlefield these days. But here's the thing with battlefields. Soldiers are tested and warriors emerge. I think this is the coming fear for lots of people. Pregnancy and who decides who gets pregnant, who decides how a pregnancy proceeds or doesn't. I'm guessing that within the next year or two, we will see more projections of pregnancy in film and fiction. And it will also have something to do with who's in charge of pregnancy, which is something that all science fiction asks us to consider. And no matter how dark this dystopian fiction gets, there's something inherently hopeful about these maternity tales. Erdrich's heroine, Cedar Songmaker, remains optimistic about the future, despite all evidence that the end is nigh. At this point in the, in the book, Cedar and her mother are in a U.S. Postal Service truck. And they are going somewhere unknown, and her mother is very depressed about what's happening. She feels that they're living through hell on earth. But Cedar really doesn't, and this is what she tells her mother. Here's something strange, Mom. Please just hear me out. I have this feeling, as I carry this baby into life, that things aren't really going backward. Things aren't really falling apart. All that is happening, even the purest chaos, physical and personal, even political, is basically all right. I know it seems naive. You might even say it's hormones. But the feeling is so powerful that I have to tell you, I am happy. A baby brings sort of the presence of the future into the present. There's a hope that things are open and that things are possible and that things are always changing and that we don't know and that that uncertainty holds a kind of trace of hope. Pregnancy becomes a seed of hope in a world gone mad where we don't understand what's going on or it's falling apart. Absolutely, pregnancy becomes the only thing that makes sense. I am happy at the very pit of myself. I feel this stupid joy, a sense of existence, a pleasure in the senseless truth. We happen to be alive. We didn't ask for it. We just are. That story was produced by Studio 360's Zoe Saunders. You can find out more about the writers Louise Erdrich and Megan Hunter and Professor Parley Ann Boswell at our website, studio360.org. Coming up, a TV and web series about mothers. Yes, I killed my baby and ate him. Non-human mothers. If I were a toad, I wouldn't have one big baby in my belly, but many little babies on my back. 
I'll talk with Isabella Rossellini about her series of funny, somewhat charmingly creepy films. If I were a cuckoo, I would often be pregnant. I wouldn't waste energy raising my children. Someone else can do that. This is the week for greeting card schmaltz and last-second floral deliveries. I'm guessing that the Mother's Day message you sent did not allude to abandonment, polygamy, or cannibalism. Yes, I killed my babies and ate him. But those are all authentic maternal instincts for some species. And animal mothers are the subject of Isabella Rossellini's online series of short films, Mamas. Isabella Rossellini, by the way, first became famous for having a very famous mother, Ingrid Bergman. She has written, directed, and stars all of the Mamas episodes. And just like her previous short films, a series called Green Porno, about sex and seduction among insects, Mamas isn't a documentary, even though it's meant to educate. Rossellini plays mother animals. In one, she's the toad mother dressed up in what looks like a giant garbage bag rolling around until her babies pop out of her back. As a mother cichlid, she wears a giant fish head and holds her baby eggs in her mouth until they hatch. And in a hamster costume, she eats a couple of her hamster babies in order for the brood to get down to a sustainable size. Isabella Rossellini, welcome to Studio 360. Thank you for having me. So Mamas takes our sentimental idea of mothers and motherhood and, and turns it on its head. You, you set out to sort of subvert the nice Mother's Day exactly. idea. Well, it, it, it was the study that I read from, you know, the leading researcher, Marilyn Izuk. Uh, she subverted the idea that maternal instinct means self-sacrifice, she got very alarmed by this idea that the common denominator to all female is to sacrifice, to give to their babies. And she said, okay, let me go out there and see that that is indeed true, because she was worried as a woman. Forget about studying and becoming a professor at the university. I'm going to be thrown back at the kitchen and serve my family. And when I read it, uh, I had the same concern and the same relief at finding out that the great diversity, the great strategies that they are uh, to perpetuate your genes without self-sacrificing. And that was exhilarating to me, fun and also liberating. Although there is sacrifice, like the, the spider who turns herself into baby Mush. food. Yeah. She turns herself into a baby food. I, first my babies eat my limbs. Babies eat only mushy food, right? So to help them, I turn my body into mush. But as the scientific book uh, that Marlene wrote, this animal is an exception. Most other animals, they don't prove that self-sacrifice is the definition of female, but good management, ability to know your resources and how to make best use of it. So she'd rather have a definition of female as good managers than self-sacrificing creatures. And, and flexible from species to species about Absolutely. how you manage to do this thing. Exactly. Why did you decide to do mamas? Was it you had done 
animals, insects having sex, and you wanted to show what happens after sex? Exactly. One of the consequences of sex is maternity. But I also, I went back to universities to study animal behavior. I'm studying for a master's degree. And so... Really? Yeah. So I, ra- I read very interesting article about maternal instinct and what do we mean by that. And that was the basis uh-huh. of my series, Mamas. And are you still going to school? You're going for the yes. doctorate? I'm still finishing my master's degree, uh-huh. and I'm starting very slowly because I work, so I can only do a course a semester. So something that might take a couple of years might take me four or five years. And how is it being back in school at our age? You know, I find it wonderful. I heard, actually, on some radio shows that a lot of people my age at 60s go back uh, to school because it's you have time and it's one way to really engage your brain, especially if you are fascinated by a subject. And yeah. This is exactly what happened to me yeah. as I worked less as a model as an actress because of age, but I was always interested in animal behavior. I really? Thought, yeah. I said, I'll go back and study it. And it really filled my day. I mean, as a almost a semi-retired actress, like every person who is retired, you know, you always fear boredom, but I'm not at all because of thanks to the studying. You have been involved in conservation as an issue for a long time. So were you always a bit of a a frustrated zoologist? I was a frustrated zoologist. And I tell the truth, it's inevitable once you are interested in animal to run into the problem that environment uh, uh, is suffering. But this is not, uh, I wish I didn't have to read about all those bad news. First of all, they are bad news. And also, it's not really my field of interest. My field of interest is really the diversity of animals, their biology, their behavior. Uh, but inevitably, you have to face the problem of uh, endangered species, uh, loss of habitat. Uh, um, you know, you have it. And the news are always so sad. So my films, they're trying to be comical. They are comical, although there's... If not sadness, there's weirdness in them. And, 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 and Mamas takes our sentimental idea of motherhood and turns it on its head. And, I mean, they are comical. As you say, there are lots of funny moments. I especially love when you played the male bumblebee uh, and the oil beetle dupes you into having sex. <laughs> and know how to emit the odor that mimics the sex pheromone to attract a male bee eager for romance. A female... I run! I fly! Ah! The larva crawled on me! Ah! They are all over me! Ah! A female or an imposter? I can't resist. I mean, nature films are not some place where you expect to see comedy. Is that why you're doing it? In a way, yes. In a way, you know, of course, I am a great fan of David Attenborough, of National Geographic. I've watched over and over again their programming. And as a filmmaker, I always felt that I couldn't have done better than they do. So there wasn't any room for me. But one thing that uh, occurred to me is that animals make me laugh. The variety that you find in nature, it's astounding, but it's also comical. And that was a voice that wasn't expressed. And so maybe I could attempt that. And that's why my film are comicals. There's also inherent comedy beyond the jokes in this grand dame of the cinema dressed in these ridiculous costumes doing silly things. (laughs) (laughs) The eggs that I carry on my back are fertilized 
Soon I will be a mama. Here are the babies. Well, you know, I, yes, I thought so. <laughs> because when uh, uh, the idea of creating these short films came, I thought, you know, could it be animation? And then I thought, no, it's better if I use myself as an actress because I can control the expression and what, because I know how to do that. And so it became me dressed up as an animal. And of course, I saw that it was completely ridiculous because I'm also identified with great fashion and uh, iconic imagery of cosmetic and fashion. So I thought that it, it could add to the totally. comic And it's why people pay attention to them, right? <laughs> if it were just another nice animation, eh. Exactly. I don't know how they pay attention to it, but, you know, we keep the the voice of glamour and beauty, and yet the films are ridiculous. Did did making them, I mean, and really thinking hard about maternal instinct as, as a universal or not, uh, make you think about your own maternal instincts, mothering styles, all that? Not so much my maternal my maternal ways, but it was liberating to know because like Marilyn Zook, I was a little bit worried that indeed maybe the essence of femininity was to self-sacrifice and that we couldn't really escape that. At the end, we had to serve our kids. And that really made me uncomfortable and thinking, oh, yes, I would like to work. And I, hmm, how do I reconcile that concept? Well, it's not all or nothing, though, right? I mean, sacrifice. Yeah. No, of course. Of course. But Darwin, though he didn't do an in-depth research, but Darwin, he, with his theory of evolution, he couldn't understand how altruism would exist. If it was the fittest, why would that individual sacrifice itself to be altruistic? Well, and evolutionary biologists are still arguing about that very thing. Uh, very much so. But so they looked also at maternity as saying maybe it is a maternal instinct that is expanded to other being than your own babies. But that, of course, it was very much tinted by our own culture that see uh, so right. women as uh, happy at home and serving the family. In the, in the piping plover short, uh, you 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 have a brief homage to your mother. Yes. W- was your mother as a mother? Did she figure in your thinking about this series of films? Uh, the, she figured because this little bird called the piping plover that lives, uh, you know, on the shores of Long Island, very close to us, pretends to be wounded. To if she feels that there is a fox or a predator, she pretends to be wounded. to attract the predator away from their nest, and then Rook flies off. I fooled the fox. I pretended to be wounded and unable to fly away to attract the predator away from my eggs. I'm always amazed how it's possible that evolution evolved to promote lying and pretending and acting. So in my episode, I play a very bad actress who was bombarded by vegetable and tomatoes and rotten tomatoes and booed, chased out of stage. And she says, If I were as talented at pretending as the piping plover, I would be a Sarah Bernhardt, an Ingrid Bergman. I was looking for a name of an actress that meant the same in many countries because I also did the film in French. So I, I needed the name of an actress that made the same 
you say, the same... Uh, iconic like, impact. I, I, yeah. Iconic impact. And of course, it's Sarah Bernhard. Right. We have never seen her because there is no footage about her. But you think of a grand lady that traveled the world and everybody had to see Sarah Bernhard at least once. But then when I said Sarah Bernhardt, I said, well, somebody in the audience might know that I'm Ingrid Bergman's daughter. If I don't say Ingrid Bergman, Mama will be offended. So I used both names. Was her, your experience as her daughter, did you take that and apply that to raising your own children? Or, or did you say, eh, that wasn't quite right. I'm going to do this differently. No, I think I really liked my mom. So I think I did very many things like my mom, including acting, including having a career uh, when I went to school. Marrying directors? Uh, marrying directors and having, uh, and having a career. But when I was little at school, not too many mothers had careers. My mom was one of the only women, mama, who had a career. And uh, when I was growing up, too, it wasn't like today. Me too. I thought, well, I get married. And then I thought, no, I w- of course I get married with a director like Mama. But I also want to work like Mama because she looked like she enjoyed it so much. Right. You became, at least in American public consciousness, a movie star rather late in your mid-30s, right? Yes. Did, did you At that point, did you have a, a plan or a scheme or a dream of here's how my career is going to play out? No, I never expected to be as successful as I have been. So, and he was very lucky because it opened many doors. But I somehow always felt that you cannot plan for success. Success either comes or doesn't come. It's like winning the lottery. So I was successful and I, I felt like I won the lottery. Right. But I don't think I can say, okay, now my career will continue that way so that I can foster success. At the end, I just go with my heart, what is interesting to me, what seems valuable to me, and hope for the best. <laughs> it's about Rossellini. Uh, it has been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank you. The Mama's Shorts are all viewable on the Sundance website. And we've got more details about them at studio360.org. With my web, I catch flies. I have to gain weight to nourish my babies, my spiderlings, when they're born. Here in Studio 360, we like hearing from listeners about particular works of art and entertainment that somehow changed their lives. We call it the aha moment. And in keeping with our Mother's Day theme, we'll hear now from one of our listeners in Boston named Beth Greenspan. If you looked in Beth's purse, you'd find a scrap of paper she's carried around for a decade. It's a poem by Mary Carr called Entering the Kingdom. When my son was about 10, or a little, maybe a little older, but about 10 years old, he started to uh, move beyond being a little boy. And I started to notice in him the signs that he was uh, moving into adolescence. You know, I noticed that his wrists were starting to get thicker. His hands were starting to look bigger. He wasn't small anymore in the same way. If I held his hand, it was actually almost the size of my own hand, maybe still a little bit smaller. But clearly, change was coming and that we were on the cusp of leaving one early phase of his life and coming into the next phase. 
at about that time, my mom, I think, found this poem by Mary Carr in the New Yorker magazine, and she clipped it and sent it to me. And of course, the moment I received it, it was as if someone had given me a map and, a, and painted a picture for me of where we were going. The poem is called Entering the Kingdom, and it's by Mary Carr. As the boy's bones lengthened and his head and heart enlarged, his mother one day failed. I'm sorry, I can hardly, I can't do it without crying, so you're just going to have to be patient with me. I'm going to try to get through it all. Okay, here we go. Uh, As the boy's bones lengthened and his head and heart enlarged, his mother one day failed to see herself in him. He was a man then, radiating the innate loneliness of men. His expression was ever after beyond her. When near sleep, his features eased toward childhood. It was brief. She could only squeeze his broad shoulder. What could she teach him of loss, who now inflicted it by entering the kingdom of his own will? As a parent, your job from the minute your child is born is actually to create an exit ramp away from you. And it's what has to happen, it's what must happen, it's what every parent wants to have happen. And yet at the same time, you find that you long for what was. That's our listener, Beth Greenspan, talking about Mary Carr's poem, Entering the Kingdom. Anne Hepperman produced it. So what's the poem or movie or song or YouTube video or whatever that actually altered the trajectory of your life? Tell us, and maybe we'll feature you on the show as well. Send a voice memo or email about your aha moment to incoming at studio360.org. And that is it for this week's show. Before we go, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to the show on iTunes or wherever and to leave us a review there, which means a lot because it juices up the show's rankings and helps other listeners discover it. Here, for instance, is a review that an iTunes user called Handwriting 101 left recently. Took me 12 years to finally write a review, but I have been enjoying this podcast since discovering it in 2006. My podcast library has expanded over the years, but this one has been a consistent priority listen and a favorite. Great pieces on culture and art with zero pretension. So grateful for Studio 360. Better late than never, but 12 years to write a review? If you're enjoying the show, please don't wait until the year 2030 to let the world know. Studio 360 is a production of PRI, Public Radio International, in association with Slate. Our executive producer is Jocelyn Gonzalez. Our senior editor is Andrew Adam Newman. Our show was mixed this week by Whitney Jones. Our producers are Evan Chung, Lauren Hansen, Sam Kim, Zoe Saunders, Tommy Bazarian. And our production assistant is Morgan Flannery. I am Kurt Anderson. You really are getting bigger and bigger, and the world is staying the same. Thanks very much for listening. PRI, Public Radio International. Next time on Studio 360... 
It took me about three or four weeks to toilet train my cat, Nightlife. Jazz legend Charles Mingus's least known, most challenging work. The Charles Mingus Catalog for toilet training your cat. How dogs and cats inspire and confound us next time on Studio 360.